Welcome to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with Opera Holland Park's Director of Opera, James Clutton. In conversation with creatives and collaborators, we explore the process of putting opera on stage and how the artists involved approach their craft. Welcome to From the Producer's Office. I'm James Clutton, Director of Opera at Opera Holland Park. In the office today, well, in an office in Manhattan, New York, New York, I've got wonderful composer Mark Adamo. Mark, great to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's absolutely welcome. Um, yeah, it's morning over there for you. It's a bit of a miserable afternoon here in, a, in, a, in London in, a, in October, but you've cheered me up already in the chats we've had before we, uh, before we started recording. Um, so Mark, I always ask any of my guests this at the beginning. Um, let's go right back. When you were a kid and growing up, was there classical music around in the house? Uh, that you, that, is that how you got into it? Was it much later? No, actually, the uh, I was the only sort of changeling child in my family who would be interested in uh, watching, say, Birgit Nielsen sing Electra in the other room on PBS while everyone else was tuning into this or that detective show. And it wasn't even that, uh, there wasn't even concert music to begin with, it was more the theater. I was listening to, uh, uh, say, Cantor and Ed, the, the basic songwriters, and then through them discovered Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein and through them discovered the concert composers that they listened to. So it was it, sort of the back, the trajectory was from the Sondheim of Company to the Sondheim of Sweeney Todd to yeah. Stravinsky to Copeland to that whole school. Exactly. But it was only really in college that I felt like concert music found me because I was principally pursuing first a playwriting degree and then a composition degree, simply to be overqualified as a theater songwriter. And it was really what right. I was trying right. to do. I was trying not to embarrass myself by asking an orchestrator, well, why can't the violin play low F sharp? <laughs> uh, so that was, you know, I, I was just simply thinking that, but the more I did what composers do, the more I liked it. Uh, and I would just do more of the exercises because I liked them. It had a kind of algebraic satisfaction to it. Uh, and then after graduation, uh, when I'm thinking, well, now I'm going to make my way back to New York and be a songwriter, people whom you would have thought known, would have known better started commissioning me to write things. So we love is, these people. We love them. We do. I, I admit to being somewhat bewildered when I thought, but you realize that I'm not a composer exactly. I'm a songwriter <laughs> with compositional skills. But if you would like me to do this, you know, piece for bassoon and, and piano and percussion, I'd right. do it. Or I'd love to do this choral piece. Or so, and these things kept happening. And then one day there was a, a conductor named Silly Alameda who will be will hold a precious place in my heart for two things. One, she commissioned the orchestra piece that uh, started my career and wow. she introduced me to my spouse of 26 years. So wow. fantastic. I will never pay for dinner for the rest of her life. No, no, indeed, indeed. <laughs> but it was she who had just started a chamber orchestra in Washington and had liked the aforementioned bassoon piano percussion piece and commissioned me to do an orchestra piece. Or more accurately invited me to do an orchestra piece, but I, I was still so self-conscious that I thought she was kidding. I really didn't think that it was a serious offer <laughs> until she called me and said, we're, we're programming this coming season and we haven't heard from you about this piece. Of <laughs> and I said, oh, oh. <laughs> It's an absolutely true story. And I, I told a friend of mine after she invited me to do this, 
And uh, he said, oh my God, that's crazy. Well, I, I know she was just saying that she liked the piece. I mean, that was not. <laughs> so, but the, the other part of it was that I did have an idea, but it never occurred to me that it would work for the orchestra because the orchestra was principally, for two reasons. One, the orchestra was there principally to, to showcase its players who were mostly drawn from the ranks of the National Symphony. And the second thing was that it was uh, a piece for uh, singing voice and speaking voice, and it was on an AIDS theme. It just seemed mm. to grow. And I thought, look, I, I do have this idea, but I absolutely understand if it's wrong for you because it's you know, given, you know, given all, all the people, no one was writing about you know, AIDS at the time. And it was also adding two, not only one, but two vocal soloists into to a chamber orchestra that was about as instrumentalists. And it needed more instruments and all this. And to her eternal credit, she said, if you need it, we'll get it right, right, right what's in your heart. Was Fantastic. The Fantastic. And that became my first piece for orchestra. And at that point, I thought, you know, there are too many people who believe in me and they're not all my mother, you know, and they can, <laughs> you're not all delusional. Um, and even I, after, after the premiere of that, I thought, you know, something just happened that wasn't a song. That yeah. maybe this is, maybe you need to start paying attention to where your life seems to be leading you artistically. And Mark, then, how old were you around this time, roughly, approximately? If this is 94, so I'm about 32. Right. So a big, big moment there, you know, to, to change that. And you're sitting in there listening to that. You've, you've done a lot of uh, different forms of, of classical writers and cantatas and, and a lot of work for choir and, and lots of different things. 1998, you get asked to, that's why I want to know, I'm not sure about this. You are commissioned to write an opera for Houston Grand Opera. Well, not initially, actually. No, that's okay. Yes, so what, I mean, this is almost where we left off. So, so Lake Victorians, which is, which is the piece that, uh, the, the symphonic piece I just mentioned, mm -hmm. comes to the attention of Elaine Walter, who is both the Dean of the School of Music from which I just graduated, and also leads a small company called the Summer Opera Theater. And it was she who approached me with the idea of an opera on Little Women. Uh, and I was thrilled with it. Uh, but I still thought, I was still thinking, well, I, an opera, oh my God, there's so many ways of getting this wrong, but let me, let me see what I can do you know, to, to figure out if I can do this after all. And I had been, I was going, I was going to be working with another librettist, but I'd been trained as a librettist and a playwright in my New York education. Uh, so I, I started digging into all the adaptations and rejected this approach and that approach. And finally, I, I came up with a way that I thought, oh, this is the way that really honors the heart of this novel and no one has done it before. People yeah. keep carrying them off in the second act. They're, they don't realize that the real love story is among these four sisters and it's not principally about Laurie or Professor Bear or all of that, all mm. important as they are to the narrative. And so blithely, I came back to the company and said, well, I know exactly how to do this. All we need to do is to uh, cut the entire first part and most of the second part and, and bring all of these changes on it. And they said, but what about the Christmas play? What about the moment where Amy falls through the ice or Joe sells her hair? And I said, exuberantly, we don't need any of that. We don't yeah. need it. We just got yeah. this core. And they said, no, that will be no. <laughs> we were hoping for something <laughs> a little bit more traditional. <laughs> the joke was that I had thought that it was, I had such doubts about how to make the piece work to begin with. 
and then found it. And now I was on fire. I thought, oh my God, this is going to, to be better than any film or theatrical adaptation that has ever uh, been attempted for this piece. And now I had no company. But I had been working as a journalist at the time, and it was through an assignment for the Washington Post that I went to Houston Grand Opera and interviewed Carlisle Floyd, who just passed. Uh, he rest in peace. And he was not the principal um, uh, subject of the, uh, of the interview, but I had long wanted to meet him, and we had this great conversation. And uh, I told him that I, I had this opera that was happening, and it would be lovely if if, if indeed it developed, if I could ask him for advice along the way, if he very graciously agreed. Mm -hmm. So it was he whom I called first when I said, well, this seems to have dematerialized. Alas, mm -hmm. I hope I haven't just cut my own throat, but this is the conversation that we had. And I yeah. could not possibly do it the way they wanted me to do it. And I really think this is the way to go. And yes. he said, why don't you send me what you have? Mm -hmm. And for I knew it, he had recommended it to David Gockley at Houston Grand Opera, and then it became a commission. Wow. I, I know, and I thought, oh, and I, I thought, there's no way in life. This is the leading company for new work. They have commissioned Edward Bernstein. They have commissioned Philip Glass. I have done one piece for orchestra. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Here is my outline. Here is the recording of late Victorians. Go with God. But I mean, truly, no harm, no foul if this matters. <laughs> and I could not have been more shocked. Wow. When what he called and said it will be two performances in '98. It will be for the the singers of the Houston Opera Studio, which is the yep. Apprentice Wing, which nonetheless included the likes of Joyce Titanato in it. So I know. I was going to bring her up later on. She's on my notice there. That's that's a nice call. Yes. So and then it, so it was two performances in March of '98. We opened on a Friday the 13th of all things. Nice. That was nice of them. Yes. And and that was the that was the moment David said that we went to brunch before what was going to be the second and final performance of the show. And he said, I just want you to know I've been leading this company for over 20 years and I have never seen an opening night for a new piece like I saw last night. And we need to talk about continuing the relationship with this company. I would like another piece for the small theater. I'd like a piece for the large theater. And I'd like to see if I can bring this back to because right. it should be on the main stage. You know, the, the Houston Opera Studio commissions were off the subscription series. And he said, yeah. this should be on the subscription series. And then he, uh, Carlisle, again, you know, who was sort of my artistic parent and not simply because my mother and father were born two days apart in the same year uh, on the 10th and 12th of June and Carlisle was born the 11th. But when when it did revive, uh, Carlisle, they were uh, Houston Grand Opera had, uh, granted a great performances telecast of Carlisle's latest opera called Sassy Tree. Yeah. And David's look, you know, I, I, I know that we're going to do this. I am wondering, though, is there any way that um, I'm trying to get Little Women onto the telecast. And Carlisle said, absolutely. He had had a, a telecast for Willie Stark. He said, I've had one, absolutely give it to Mark's piece. Exactly. Wow. wow. Right? Fantastic. I mean, fantastic. Oh, yeah, really amazing. On, you know? Amazing. And that, you know, so, so all of those things happened. The revival. But thank God they did that, um, Mark, really, because it that exists now, you know, that, 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 a lot of great things I have from that time. And as a, not only as a memento, but something that's one I saw when I first, um, you, you know, when I first became aware of it, I saw that recording. Um, but did you know the book itself very well before you started uh, work on that? 
I did as a child, you know, the, the first time I ever cried over a death scene in the companion library, you know, that what was over, I think it was page 453 of the companion library edition. Of, and I don't know if we still have it, uh, but the pages are crinkled and I take full responsibility. But the, I didn't, I didn't, I, I hadn't given it a second thought after my childhood. And when I went back and looked at it, I thought, you know, what do you do with this? Number one, it's a, it's a book of short stories, thematically yeah. linked rather than a built novel by design. And if you read Olga's correspondence, that was what she was asked to do. Yeah. And it, it didn't, it really was a chronicle. It was supposed to be just the texture of lives growing up mm. and forward. Mm. And the adaptations didn't really help either because yeah. it seemed that we all start in the birth family um, in a, and they, they render their relationships rather more mildly than Alka mm. herself did. Mm. But everyone hustles to get them out of the house, you know, to the, yeah. the romance with Laurie, the maid's romance with Brooke, yeah. Professor Bear, yeah. all the more um, overtly theatrical elements. Yeah. Of course, Amy falling through the ice. But I thought, but they don't add up to anything. There's no ending, not mm. really. And it's interesting that if you look at the adaptations, there are so many over they, they just take them in completely different directions. And yeah. to me, I thought, okay, nobody's found the core of this. Yeah. Uh, they, they did all have four things in common. One is that everyone had uh, Meg's romance with Brooke, Beth's death, uh, Joe and Laurie, and uh, Professor Bear. Yeah. And it also, the other thing that was more personal to me is that I, every time we left the, the, the house of the birth family, I got bored. Like I'm not really interested in Amy going to London. I mean, all, all actually the Amy going to London chapters are great, but I felt like the core of it are these four sisters. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that the when there, there was the second adaptation from 1949, which is in many ways the worst of the, <laughs> of the films that I've seen. It's really it's you, you don't want to know. But <laughs> June Allison plays one um, one scene so brilliantly that it unlocked the show for me, which is when uh, she is coming back from selling a story in New York and Laurie uh, indicates that, that he has a secret and whispers into her ear and all of a sudden she flees back to the front gate, like the house is burning down. Mm -hmm. uh, and the house is not burning down, but she is seeing, seeing Meg, Meg and Brooke uh, at the gate and clearly something is happening between them. Right. And Allison's face goes completely to ice. And yeah. I thought, that's what this is about. Actually, th yeah. this is about somebody, because all of these um, scenes, those four compass points are scenes of loss that mm -hmm. in, when Meg is falling in love with Brooke, she's no longer available to, mm -hmm. uh, to Joe as her best friend. When Laurie falls in love with Joe, he's kind of leaving her as a best friend and rematerializing as a suitor in whom she has no interest at all. Yeah. And then the loss of Beth is obvious. And then finally, you know, yeah. the, the, the ending with a bear is, is some conclusion to that. Yeah, and that's that's when I got excited about it. But that all of that was simply an adulthood later. Right, amazing. I mean, I, mean, I think that when um, when I was thinking about talking to you today, I was also thinking that you didn't make it easy for yourself in that way because uh, taking a beloved core novel or play or whatever it is is always difficult because people have their ideas, um, yes. and, and and then you add on top of that that it is a long novel. You know, and yes. lots of different strands. And when I first heard about it, my thing was this: why I got interested, so interested in your uh, uh, in your opera was that you, I couldn't see at first how that could be 
Oh, that makes two of us. There's so many things there. And you have to really focus it down and you have to make decisions, yeah. you know. And something that happened to us a few years ago, we commissioned a, a composer who lives here with us in the UK, Will Todd, to write a, a family version of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland for us. Uh-huh. And what we were discovering in that, it's been very, very successful for us. It's played 100 performances or whatever. Um, is that so many people knew the story, but I, even a lot of my research, I was saying to them, tell me the story in order. No one could do it. No one can do it. They all think that every, including myself, everyone thinks they know exactly how it goes, but it's a series of, it's a scene, uh, you know, it's a series of scenes that, uh, you you know, and then you can play around with it. And then sometimes people go, yeah, we didn't miss that scene at all. Once you've, once you've cut it. Once you find the core, sure. And you find the core. And that's the thing. It always struck me in that. And when I, when I started listening to your work, I thought, yeah, that's, that's, (laughs) that's how to do it. You know, we can, we can see it through that. And because I think that at the moment it's like um, any famous big novel that you've got to say, you have to make choices, you know, especially as the librettist as well. You uh, you saved yourself a lot of arguments with someone else by writing. That is true. That is true. I just take myself out for drinks and say, do you need that last drill fan before you know it? Well, well, the thing that was heartening about this, uh, about, about finding this, because then I immediately went back to the novel and thought, wait, am I just imposing something? onto the text and then you see that actually she really did write this maybe even semi-consciously because there were so many uh so many lines that right in the beginning of the book uh joe had the look of a girl um rapidly growing up into a woman and who didn't like it Mm -hmm. and i thought that's well that's my theme and there were so many all all the so many of the lines that uh, are in the libretto are lines that i kind of deployed but were from the book when she says, I should marry you myself and keep you safe in the family, you know, which is it's a rather peculiar line out of context. But if you see that she is wise enough to know that she's happy, but not yet smart enough to know that happiness is going to change, which yeah. is a big theme. I mean, one of the things yeah. that excited me about that is that, you know, that's, you know, that that's, that's Rosen Cavalier. That's the gospel of, you know, according to St. Well, or the letter of St. Paul. When I was a child, I thought as a child, and then I had to put away childish things. I thought there's a depth to this. And that's probably why we keep returning to this piece over and over again. Mm-hmm. And we film it however we film it. But the fact that there were four versions of it actually was, I think now five uh, with, with Gerwig, um, which is excellent actually rather heartened me because I thought, well, if we keep going back to it, clearly we haven't gotten it right yet. So (laughs) we haven't gotten the version that will make all the rest of them redundant. And so- I missed you there, Mark. Did you say that you you thought the last film was a good version? Is that what you just said? I thought it was, it's interesting because it did exactly the opposite of what I tried to do with my piece insofar Mm -hmm. as that it collapsed Orchid's own mm. story with with little women yeah. uh, which made it a rather rather more meta a rather headier piece than mine although it's a very interesting idea yeah. but that occurred to me early on i thought well since there are all of these correspondences between the alcott family and march family mm. do i do that and i thought you know that would be an interesting thing to do don't do that because you're really setting it's not it's not her memoir you know, it's it, it's informed by it, but Little Women is its own thing. So you really need to stay within the shell. Yeah, yeah, great, great, exciting. It's really exciting. You mentioned in passing, well, not in passing. You you brought it out, but I was going to bring it up anyway. When you this the young artist um, at Houston that put it on in their first, in its very first uh, production, 
had a little uh, a little known mezzo called Joyce Di Donato in that in that um, yes. in that castle. It's not bad. Um, she well, was all excellent though. It was really they were at such a high level. It's hard to believe. It's, it's well, what a great thing. And but I've heard her talking about Little Women because um, she sang the role of um, Meg. Meg, Meg. And and when I talk to singers here. And especially now, uh, you know, now I've announced that we're doing this opera. I mean, every every soprano and mezzo in the country is asking, you know, asking to sing for me. I think that the thing, the thing is that what really happened, what not surprised me, but was really interesting is that so many people, so many singers like singing it. And that sounds a silly thing to say because they like singing it, but they like singing it. Everyone says to me, you know how to write so well for the voice that there was a lot of questions to me you know was he a singer was you know is mark was a mark a singer but you you wasn't a singer but you just write incredibly well for singers well I, i've sung i mean not in a very distinguished way i did theater and i did um uh, choral singing and my mother was a singer uh-huh. uh, but the um i guess partly the the in terms of, of setting words for the voice which is exactly what you're talking about that's where my theatrical training or my songwriting training uh, comes into play uh, because you know you're not setting a text per se i mean if you're writing a theater lyric it really needs to be as close to to speech or at least it's as expressive as speech as possible mm-hmm. uh, but the other thing is that i i did live in um uh, the uh, someone with whom i shared an apartment for about seven years was a voice teacher so I had all these singers passing in and out of uh, of the apartment, and it was so interesting to hear voices, both voices that were you know in a very high degree of refinement, and people just building the instrument from the beginning. And I so I ended up talking to him uh, a lot about things that I never would have thought of. For example, that uh, there's a the um, in the uh, Brindisi ensemble uh, in Traviata, I think there is a C for Violetta, but it's in an ensemble. It's really, I think, why is he mm. putting it there? Mm. You know, where it's kind of going for nothing. And he said, because then she'll know where the sea is later. You know, so she'll have a moment to revisit it as opposed to having it all in the middle and then suddenly having to, you know, pop out this, this voice. And that actually happened. I did that, for example, in Meg's aria, mm. when She's she's singing very high most of the role, and then then the aria itself, the signature gesture begins quite low, mm-hmm. and so there are there are uh, two G sharps, um, things end, no, and then the beautiful one is the third one on the word things, and the whole point of those those other G, G sharps is that, well, because she's not really been singing in this retrospective time, mm-hmm. the, those it would be lovely if those were beautiful, but they don't have to be. This one does, so right. it yeah. kind of. And uh, I think Marilyn Horn, one, one quote that, that absolutely informed the writing of this piece was she had run into a little bit of heavy vocal weather, I think after after a Carmen and was going back to uh, singing with a lot of Rossini and Mozart. And I was wondering why it's mm. so, there's so many notes. Why is that, mm. why is that therapeutic? Mm. And, or she was asked that in an interview and she said, because essentially the, um, it's a massage for the voice. You're, you are skipping through all of these registers, but not mm. parking in any one. And that becomes, if you will, its own warm-up. And I thought, oh, exactly. That is what I should do with the recitative of this piece so that no one is, you know, parking on a, on a monotone. It's the, 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 um, 
it's, it might be hard to learn because it's chromatic, but vocally everything is kept limber and mm -hmm. agile so that when you need to settle into a, a certain register, it's not like you have, um, the voice has been replenished, the voice has been refreshed by these other sections so that it completely bloom here. But, um, that was the, but thank you for relaying that compliment because you know you never know if you get that right as, no, as no, a non-singer no. and it's... <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I think because I've talked to quite a, quite a lot of singers and, and, and they've said that we did um, the, the, the first moment I, I found this piece. Uh, um, we did a, a gala for um, an organization in London called Swapra, supporting women yes. in opera. Back yes, in, and Lucy Schaefer, who was a the great Lucy Schaefer, the great, great Lucy Schaefer. Um, and I was I was standing at the side watching the rehearsal and I was just um, without the without the program. And I was just saying. This this is good. I I don't know it, and it, it was it was one of those times where you you get embarrassed unless you're saying I don't know this piece that everyone knows, you know, and everyone goes, "What do you? You run an opera company? You don't know that piece?" And I don't. And then I just sat down and watched it properly, and it's like, okay, we need to find more out about that. That that just works beautifully. And um, but I was talking to a, a few singers there that, that night and and since, and um, particularly for for the for the four sisters yes. you you get this thing that a lot of people grew up grew up with that book and it's mm -hmm. very special to them in different ways and people remember how old they were reading it with their parents or reading it putting themselves in 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 the story or or whatever you know roll on 20 25 years or whatever and they're singing and then they know there's a piece on that and then it's a good piece to sing as well and i think that's just an exciting thing because there's so many you know so many good roles for women which obviously is, is, a, is a thing at the moment you know anyway generally but i think just having that uh, in such strong roles all the way through the piece and the novel and and your piece just is a really you know it's, it's very very refreshing and people just want to do it and it's great thank you well it, it did it was a little bit of a something of a difficult sell uh, early on um to houston because I said, look, uh, people kept wanting a male lead. And I said, there are no male leads. <laughs> <laughs> I'm absolutely, I, it's, well, it's, but I, once we understand that, you know, that, that Joe is, you know, she's a character that, that's stuck in Canberra. Well, isn't Laurie that? And I said, no, Laurie, mm. I promise you, Brooke, Bear, Laurie, they will all be really juicy and substantial roles and they will be worth seeing. They are all supporting roles. It, yeah. There is indeed, uh, there are four romantic leads, Meg, Joe, Beth, Amy. If you, if you accept that there is a love story among these four sisters, and I grew up with two sisters, and mm. when they were getting along, Nothing, nothing was lovelier. And when they weren't, I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> Tristan and Isolde is a romantic comedy compared to my, to my sister's, you know, <laughs> that particular relationship. So I, I said, look, trust me, the, the relationship among these four women is absolutely going to be enough to carry the evening. Yeah. And if, if you try to like cobble together, uh, you know, make a, you know, a traditional boy girl romance out of this, we will go down the same failed path as everybody else. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Is the, the relation among siblings, particularly, and among women, you know, uh, even more particularly, I mean, there's, there's so much richness there. And it was when they said, okay, fine, go do it. So it is, it has been a great um, gift to me, you know, as well, not to have gotten that wrong, you know, because you do feel like, you know, like I am not a sister myself. I had two of them, but, you know, so you do feel like, 
you know, a, a, a man doing a, a piece like this, you know, the, the risk of, of distortion is high. Oh, I think, I think that, you know, that was strange of them to ask, but also very brilliant of them to, to change their mind and go with you uh, and trust you because the thing that... It was, it was, you know, well, that, but I, I just, I, did, I believe that so strongly. I thought yeah. that, that it's about them. They are the title characters, you know, and it's really their relation, how those relationships develop is the motor of the plot. It's not, it's not just who, and even Alcott said this because what a lot of people forget is that what we now know as Little Women was actually Little Women and its sequel. The original yeah. novel ended at the end of the first part when father comes back from the war and it became such a hit that uh, they asked her for a second part and all uh, so many letters were written saying, well, who will Joe marry? I mean, what about Joe and Laurie? And Alcott writing to her cousin was quite cynical about it and said, well, frankly, I don't think that Joe would marry anybody. But uh, So I made up this kind of funny match for her. Uh, but now I'm marrying everybody off and I might as well call the second part of the book Wedding Marches, you know, because that's what everybody seems to want. So it seemed to me that her investment in it was much more of the first part of the book. You know, and yeah. that's where the, the that's where I you know, and as it is for the opera, that the opera really concentrates on the bond among those four women, and yeah. then it's how when they leave the house, how that how those forces really pull at that relationship. It's not like the the the, the marriage is the improved version of that. That there's real loss, and I think anybody who's ever had a family or a close friend, anyone who has ever either heard or uttered the phrase, I think. I've outgrown this relationship. Mm. Well, if I can get that in the template of the Alcadem, and that will sing, yeah. that makes an opera. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, fantastic. it's really fabulous to hear you talk about it. I'm even more. I'm even more excited now, Mark, about the show. And I was, I was excited at the beginning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that you're doing it. I really am. I couldn't be happier. Well, that's great. I'm really. I, I mean, we're all excited here. You know, as we said before, we started recording that. I'm really wanting to build an area where we're doing more contemporary work. We're doing uh, more commissions as we build uh -huh. on. I think it's, I think it's important at this time. I mean, obviously I'm expecting agreement from a composer, um, but a, a living composer, <laughs> yes. but I think it is important that we do people in my job, keep pushing it now because there is a need to now we, we we'll always look after the classics. We'll do lesser known works from years ago as well. But this is an area that we have to now step up for properly. Well, I will tell you on our side of the pond, it's the most exciting area, maybe in concert music. It used to be years ago, I mean, when Little Women first came out and it was uh, revived, people thought, well, no one, it wasn't so much the, the new commission, but the idea that it, it would be revived and it's never left the stage. The only, yeah. it only, uh, left the stage for COVID, but it's been done every year between three and seven times a year somewhere in the yeah. world. But now that's common. Now new work uh, yeah. being commissioned. I mean, it's, it's the liveliest area of concert music, probably certainly in the US. So yeah. I think there's something in the air, you know? No, like, it's, it's, it's great. It's really good. You, you mentioned it then, I meant to ask you about this earlier on. It does get done a lot, this piece, uh, particularly in the States. It gets performed, um, you know, many times a year, doesn't it? But yes, but it has never been done in the UK. 
and I've, I've so long worked across the pond. So I mean, <laughs> well, I, I, truly, I mean, it, it's been the, uh, I think the Dutch premiere was, was quite recent and there's a beautiful version of Australia and all of that, but I thought I'd, I'd just love to see this in London. I think this yeah. is- Well, you're gonna, you're gonna have that. So we're very, very proud to be bringing it to his UK debut and obviously therefore his London debut. And, uh, and I can't wait to welcome you to London as well, my friend. And uh, I want that day when you first walk in and saying, okay, what are we doing now? And we'll have a drink and talk about where we are. <laughs> yes. I'm looking forward to it very, very much. As well, I, sir. Well, we're going to be in touch throughout this process, Mark, on, on some podcasts, some, some um, panel discussions with you and our team about general stuff. We want our audience to get to know you over the next over the next. Um, whatever it is, uh, nine, 10 months or whatever. And so they all, uh, so they all know who you are when you're coming in through the door, you'll be mobbed as you come through the, uh, <laughs> the theater gate. Um, but for now, Mark, it's, it's been wonderful to speak to you. Have a lovely day, but um, thanks for talking to us today. And as I say, we're all very, very excited about uh, UK premiere of Little Women being in London at Holland Park next year. Thank you, thank you, looking forward. Thanks, Mark. You have been listening to From the Producer's Office, a series of informal podcasts with James Clutton. For more information on Opera Holland Park, please visit www.operahollandpark.com.